I smell a new tradition now. I mean, if we didn't have enough, now I'm expecting a video every single year. We might have to have a video contest now. That was great. My favorite part was Samuel's eyes when his wife was yelling. That was the best. I caught that. Yeah, you could go on and reserve your spot for that. And if you're bringing a chili or planning on bringing a chili, that's where you'll want to let us know is right there on the events part of our website. Would love for you to be a part of that. Just so you know, we are going to follow just COVID precautions. Um, we are going to have our food in a totally separate room. So it's, I don't want you to imagine a big bar full of chilies, which we normally have, you know, somewhere between 10 and 30 chilies there with a bunch of kids running around sticking their hands all over the crock pots. That's not how that's going to go down. We'll have one or more people in there serving your chili for you. That will be sequestered off so that we don't have a lot of people milling around the chilies. We're not going to have blow-ups this year, right? Because that is, I mean, not only do the kids lick all over those things, adults do too. I see adults up there flying through the bouncers, so we're not going to do that. We'll have sanitizers. We will have um, temperature guns. We will have masks where it makes sense to have masks. Um, so just know that we are, we are being thoughtful for this as a staff as we kind of move through just the pragmatics and the strategy of how we can do an event like this, celebrate our ninth birthday, have a great field day, and have a great chili cook-off. And so just go online and RSVP on that. We'd love to have you be a part of that. Um, that's next week too, by the way, next week. Also, I have one announcement, and that is that we are in the need of audiovisual and basically video, well, I'll just say audiovisual help, okay? Typically, we will have a small rotation of people that will be back here. You can't even see them right now. Who's back there today? Charlie, there he is. I can't see him. A little bit of a dungeon back there. He's the one that makes all of this up on the screen possible. And then we've got Nathan running a camera back there with Joshua right now. We need help. We need maybe a couple more people back here and a couple more people on the camera just to kind of help us do this. We're a little stretched with our volunteers just because we have half our church not here right now. Um, so if this is of any interest, I know some of you are looking for a way to get plugged in and, and serve. These are easy. Don't let, don't let the technology of it freak you out. If you could copy and paste and you can drag and drop and you know how to use your cell phone, you could do both of those things relatively easy. They'll kind of run you through it all, but it's kind of just a point and click type of a deal. So if you have the time to be helpful in that, we could really, really use your help because we're running a little bit thin in those areas right now. And so if that is something that you're interested in or would at least like to talk to somebody about, we're going to put a, a phone number up on the screen. And if you just text the, the number and say, I'd like to volunteer or just the word volunteer, if we have it, can you find it? The number? That's the one. Thank you. 865-484-6086. If you can just text that and let us know that you'd be helpful in volunteering, we will get in touch with you and we'll take it from there. Um, but listen, that's all I'm going to give on announcements. If you have a Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes 7. We're going to finish chapter 7 today and we are going to roll through the rest of the book relatively quickly because that's just the way the book reads, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you didn't have a Bible, you didn't bring one with you, we'll splash it up on the screen. We have free Bibles for you on the table out there, the guest table. Feel free to grab one as a gift. And while you're looking for Ecclesiastes 7, about 20 years ago, my wife and I started renovating our second home in West Texas. We flipped our first home, did really well. We were flipping our second home. We even thought about making that as a side hustle 
um, just because we, we found ourselves to be pretty good at it and, and had a taste for it. This was long before HGTV was even a thing. This is when Chip and Joanna were probably in high school still. Um, but we did really well, and we enjoyed it. Uh, we were rehabbing our second home before we moved into it, and the primary big thing we were going to do was stain the concrete floors. This was a big deal in Texas. A lot of your custom homes in Texas will have a stained concrete floor. The concrete slabs are usually in really good shape. So what this means is you're spraying an acid on the floor, and then it reacts with the concrete. Depending on the kind of acid, will render a different color, right? And so you have to spray a lot of acid. It doesn't really pop, though. It just kind of looks mottled. It kind of looks like you've made a mistake until you come back after it cures and put a urethane across it. You just kind of get like a roller, and you just roll this urethane, and then it pops. Then it looks like it came right out of a magazine. It's really not that hard to do, to be honest with you. I started the urethane process in the early evening so that it would cure overnight. And I had all the doors and the windows open. I was alone. Paula was at our first home. I was too cheap to buy a proper respirator. So after a few hundred square feet of huffing urethane fumes, I started to see little creatures in the house. Little shadow people running around. And I remember the first time I saw it, it was out of the corner of my eye. And I thought, was that an animal? I mean, all the doors are open. Was that an animal? I, just, I was just kind of struck with, what do I do? I mean, there's nothing in this house. I'm alone. Was that an animal? I couldn't get it through my head. We have animals in Texas, but none of them are black and this big and move that fast, right? So I just started screaming at it. I didn't know what else to do. I thought it was just a little demon or a devil. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't grow up doing drugs. I never saw this coming. <laughs> Always wear a respirator. They're not that expensive, all right? But by the time I got to the end of this job, I had no common sense left. And so I literally, capital L, literally rolled and painted myself into a corner. I just wasn't even paying attention. I was just in the corner thinking, well, what do I do? I just have to wait. I also have to stand here and wait for it to cure while these little shadow creatures keep moving around. So if you could just imagine, I'm half-baked out of my mind. I'm right in the corner of my living room, and I'm just yelling at things, just yelling at things that aren't even there. I'm praying. I don't know if Jesus even counts those prayers. I don't even remember what I said. Paula came a little bit later. She said the fumes were so bad she could smell it from the street with all the stuff open. And when she came in, I just said, I just want the creatures to go away, and I want a bowl of macaroni and cheese. Not necessarily in that order. <laughs> but this was the very first time I understood the expression of being painted in a corner, where you're just frozen, you're stuck there. I felt harassed, tormented, totally out of options, confused, frustrated, very frustrated. You know, Solomon, who is our tour guide in this book of Ecclesiastes, he's our tour guide through this, what he's calling life under the sun, which is just a, a life spent reaching for ultimate things, ultimate purpose, ultimate meaning outside of God. It's living a life on this earth as if God never even existed, as if he is not in the equation, right? Experimenting with anything we can get our hands on to bring us what we want as ultimate satisfaction. And he's reminding us chapter after chapter after chapter in different ways how we have painted ourselves in an existential corner, frozen, nowhere really to go, confused, Tormented, harassed, harassed by the conclusion that no matter what we do and no matter how hard we try, there is 
no ultimate satisfaction for us in this vanishing and forgettable life on this earth under the sun. And this, of course, torments us. It harasses us, freezes us in place, leaves us without direction. You see, his conclusion, every single point he makes, is that there is no ultimate meaning and satisfaction to be had here. And so your life is meaningless, like a vapor that just comes and it goes. It, it looks like there is something, but when you get your hands around it, it's actually nothing. It's what he calls the word hevel. We've been looking at it in detail for several re- weeks now. There is no ultimate meaning. Your life has no meaning. But the gospel comes along and does not disagree with this, but cooperates with it, answers it, saying it's true. There is no ultimate meaning on this life under the sun, grabbing for the things of this world, but there is ultimate meaning in Christ. Therefore, if Christ is the centerpiece of your satisfaction and your contentedness, then no longer is your life meaningless, but now your life is full of meaning. Now, money makes sense for the first time. Sex makes sense for the first time. Work makes sense for the first time. Achievement, all of these things, relationships, everything finally makes sense when Christ is the cornerstone to our satisfaction. Now, just a quick disclosure. Today's passage is technically difficult, and there is some variety in how scholars handle it. I'm going to do the best I can with you today, but as always, whenever we hit tough passages, and we do, because we don't skip them, we read all the way through these books, I'm going to say it's up to you to test what I'm saying and see if it's true. That's what Paul said the Bereans did. It's up to you to sit down. Don't farm out your Bible study to me. It's up to you to say, I think what Luke is saying is right, but I'm not sure about that one thing he said at that one time. Go and study it. Go and study it, right? But also, just because something is technically difficult, it doesn't mean that your Bible is inaccessible or out of reach. Everything you need to live a life of godliness is plainly given to you. Everything you need to enjoy Jesus and make disciples here, everything you need has been plainly and obviously given to you. This is why I've always been a little bit leery of handing out Greek tenses and Hebrew root words, not because they're not important, because they are, and I do look at those things, but I never want you to feel like this is inaccessible unless you have a professional to hold your hand, right? You have everything you need to enjoy this life, to enjoy Jesus, to understand the gospel, to live a gospel in Christ-shaped life. You've got everything you need, right? So I want to say that up front. So let's look at Ecclesiastes 7. This is going to be the word of the Lord for us today. You will see Christ more clearly through the prism of this passage for us today. This is Solomon, our tour guide, the preacher he calls himself, and he says in verse 15, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. 
lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman, whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I've not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Okay, tough passage. At the center of all religions... In all philosophies is the idea of karma, right? Karma. It doesn't really matter. They might use different words, different traditions to celebrate karma, to guard karma. But the motor behind everything that is not Christianity is built around the framework of karma. The idea that if you do good and are good, good will come to you. And then conversely, if you act like a donkey to everybody and you, you're a moron and you sin or you're evil, then bad things will come to you. I mean, the idea is you get what you deserve. That's what karma is. And we're all karmic from the womb. That's how we enter this life under the sun. And the thing is interesting about karma is we secretly hope that others get karma, but we're also a little bit afraid that it might visit us too because we know that we deserve some things, right? We know justice can just as quickly visit our front doorstep. So we both love it, the idea of it, and we hate it because we're conflicted. The idea of karma, it promises a balance in this world, and we all love balance, right? What we don't like is unbalance. It's the yin without the yang that kind of makes us unsettled, and we see this malfunctioning all the time. Karma as we see it in this life under the sun, is broken. It's broken. And when I talk about karma, you might actually be tempted to think that I'm talking about the Moonies. They kind of camp out and hand out tracks by the southwest gate at LAX airport. If you've ever flown in there, they're all right there. And you're like, and if you come from the Midwest or the Southeast or something, and you're like, what is that? I've never seen that before. It's like on TV. That's what they are, right? It doesn't matter if that or it's a little, little tiny bronze statue at your favorite Asian restaurant. That's typically what we're used to thinking of when someone says the word karma. But you need to know it's deeply entrenched in modern evangelical Christianity. It's in the church, this idea that we get what we deserve. Right? You know this if you've ever been tempted to say to yourself or even out loud about a family that has gone through something or a person that has gone through something, why did that happen to them? Right? I mean, why did that happen to them? They love missions. I mean, the guy leads a missional community. I, I think one of their kids wants to be a pastor. Why did this happen to them? I mean, they show up to a church gathering every time the doors are open. Why did this happen to them? Why do you say that in your heart? Karma. It's this idea that good families don't get cancer, that good families don't lose kiddos in accidents. 
That's the main idea of what we're looking at right here. Life under the sun is a life full of broken, malfunctioning karma where the good do die young and the villains live a long time. Why? Because there's a glitch in the matrix. It's broken. It's broken. So because of this, Solomon sees very plainly, he feels painted into a corner, knowing that wisdom is better, righteousness is better, but he can't reach it. Like me, stuck in that corner, painted into a corner. I can't reach anything. That's how he feels in this passage. And it unnerves him. That's why we catch him saying, so what's the point? Your Bible says, why should you destroy yourself? Some of your Bibles say, ruin yourself. It's the same idea. Why even bother? Why run yourself down to, to just nothing, to powder, to do this thing? He even says, You're, it's, this has never even been done before. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. He says, this thing called attaining wisdom and righteousness, never been done. And he's right. It never has been done. See, David says it in the Psalms, and Paul comes and quotes him to the Roman church. In Romans 3, stay where you're at. He says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now you need to know, we didn't start in this place, in the garden. This isn't where we started. But as Solomon says, God made us upright, but we sought our own schemes. That's how we ended up. And here's one big scheme that we set ourselves to that he really kind of shines a bit of a spotlight on in this passage. And that's that we love to define ourselves by ourselves. We're a very self-righteous people, right? That's what he's kind of wanting you to get from this passage, and that's where this passage finds us. We are a self-righteous people that love to measure ourselves by looking around and stacking our life against those who are around us to see if we are righter or wronger than them. Are we pleasurable? Are we valuable? Are we significant? I don't know. We just have to start comparing ourselves with other people in the room, in society, to see how do we really measure up? What is my stock price compared to everybody else's? We know this because of this tricky little part of verse 16 where he says, be not overly righteous and do not make yourselves too wise. That sounds weird, doesn't it? Probably when we read it the first time, you thought, what is he saying? Is he saying that, you know, like, like don't be too foolish, but don't be too wise, kind of stick a foot in each world? You know, I mean, moderation is everything, right? I mean, is that what he's saying? No, it's not what he's saying. It's tricky because of the way the verbs mix up. And like I said earlier, I don't like going into the details of the verbs and which is a reflexive verb and which is not. But what he is effectively saying, if we were to translate this into our language today, is don't assess or evaluate your own righteousness or you'll ruin yourself. You'll come to ruin. You'll be destroyed if you try to appraise your own stock price by looking around and measuring it up against everybody else. Paul actually deals with this in a peculiar way when he speaks to the Corinthian church. He says this in chapter 4, verse 3. Again, stay where you're at. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Isn't that interesting? What he's saying is it doesn't really affect my value or how God sees me by what you think or even what I think about myself. Friends, listen, if you judge yourself and appraise yourself by stacking your life against others, you will find ruin. 
And this is not theology in a minor key. This is a heavyweight thing he's dealing with. This is not a small thing. This is a big thing. Let's look how Christ deals with the same topic in Luke 18. I'll read this. If you want to stay in Ecclesiastes, that's fine, because I know it's a real hard book to find. He says this in verse 9, and it'll be up on the screen. He told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's his audience, okay? We know the speaker's Christ. We know the audience are people that trust in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt, which is what self-righteous people do. And he says, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, his listeners, they couldn't see it in themselves. Self-righteous people rarely do. It's hard for me to, right? Usually when we hear a pastor talk or somebody talk about self-righteousness, we hope that other people hear it, right? We're like, I'm so glad they're in the room right now. They really need this, right? Or we start thinking about, who can I send this link to? I'm going to send this link to my mom. I'm going to send this link to my friend because they're not here, but they really need to hear it. Listen, if that's you, if you're doing that right now, you're the one. You're the self-righteous person. You see, the self-righteous person usually judges themselves on what they do not do. On what they do not do. I'm so glad I'm not this guy. I'm so glad I don't smoke weed. I'm so glad I don't sleep around. I'm so glad, I mean, you just fill in the blank. I'm so glad I'm not like everybody else. They've got issues. This is why I This is why most people don't feel like they're ruined when they're self-righteous, because you're sitting above other people. You're never going to feel ruined or destroyed up there. You're going to feel safe. So what our tour guide does in Solomon is he kind of tells us this big manifestation of how we see this happening in our life, right? One One of maybe two, one and a half manifestations is we're not very humble. We don't do a good job when someone threatens our sense of righteousness. When somebody threatens our image, we revolt. We don't do well. It says this in verse 21 and 22. He won't throw it up on the, stay, or on, the, on the screen. I'll just read it to you. He says, do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Isn't that how it is? You overhear somebody saying something about you. Maybe it's veiled and passive, but you know it's aimed for you. We react when we hear that, don't we? We react because we feel like, We're exposed, and we have something to protect. Even when the talk is real talk, when it's accurate, and it comes from a friend, we are tempted to do this. I am. Even if a friend comes up and says, hey, listen, we need to talk about something. You're you're really struggling in these key areas, and I I feel like I need to speak directly to it. I feel that that sense of self-righteousness in me starts to want to maybe, maybe turn the tables a little bit. Oh, yeah? Me? Well, let me tell you something about yourself you don't know, right? 
I want to evaluate their action. I want to make it feel like they are not qualified to talk to me about my stuff because after all, they've got their own stuff. I want to do this because I want my sense of rightness to stay intact. Because if you have something bad to say about me and it's accurate, that means I'm not right anymore. It means I'm wrong. It means my stock price falls. It means I'm less valuable. I'm not as righteous. And maybe if we were to add to this manifestation, that is a big reason many people are flawed in how they connect to others. We don't always do a good job in self-righteous, and I'm one of you, on connecting to others, right? Did you notice he said something very odd and not so 2020 in verse 26? I find something to be more bitter than death. The woman, he says, and then he goes off to describe a certain kind of woman, right? He goes on later on to say, my soul is sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Did you catch that? Sounds like he's a misogynist, doesn't it? Listen, he is. He is a misogynist. He had 700 wives. No problem, right? Remember, his views on women are not the lesson of this book any more than the unhelpful speeches of the friends of Job were the normative lessons for us in the book of Job or the racism of Jonah or the drunkenness of Noah. I want you to remember that these are the ranting laments of a confused, wise man. One without the gospel as we have the gospel as well. So yeah, he was a misogynist, big time. So was his dad. His dad was a murderer on top of that. And listen, I could throw another dozen names in the mix of unimpressive behavior from unimpressive men. And that's because your Bible is full of villains. in in need of the same heroic gospel that you and I need. The goal is not to read this and say, I want to be like Solomon, or I want to be like Peter, or I want to be like these other women or men, but to be like the God-man who comes to rescue all of us, who we are all in deep need of. I want you to remember that. And I also want you to remember that this guy used women as an experiment to find ultimate meaning. And before we sneer on that, we do the same thing with significant others. Now, he talks about this back in chapter 2, and we did take a little bit of a glimpse at it when we hit that a couple months ago. But his goal was to find ultimate satisfaction and joy and meaning in a significant other. He wanted a woman to love him, cherish him, encourage him, to complete him, as we like to say, just like we do. We always think, as single people, that we are one significant other away from having everything that we really want. And some of us, if we don't have a healthy marriage, we think that we are another significant other away from having the life that we want. So he marries a woman, and then another, and then another, all the way up to 700. Just wrap your head around that. And then he just said, you know what, let's stop the whole wife thing, but let's just keep adding women. Another 300 on top of that. Can you hear his frustration here when he says, you know what, I found more bitter than death? Mean, seductive women. Mean, seductive women. It's worse than death itself. And then he goes on to maybe add to it. He doubles down and he says, one upright man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all of these, not to be found. None of them. What he's saying is is out of a ton of guys, there might be one out of a whole crowd of them that are upright that I feel like I can connect with. Maybe one. Can I just say as a guy, 
It feels like he's right. Feels like he's right. Feels like it could, there, there can just be one out of a thousand that you can really lay down and bear your soul to and be real with, really connect to at a soul level. It feels like it. Because many men are groomed and nurtured to think that deep soul to soul connections is feminine and weak. That's what's peddled to us from a young age. I mean, if you're a guy and you're listening or you're watching, I want you to consider how fast, how easy is it for you to get past Saturday scores and fart jokes to really lay your soul out and just bear yourself as you really are, to really get to it. How easy is that? Not. It's not, is it? I mean, maybe on like a three-day retreat, you could finally get there on day three, right? You could have real talk in a real way with real guys. It doesn't happen quickly. Why? Because our bravado won't ever let us drop down an octave and, and stretch those muscles of having wise discussions with wise men using wise words and being very open and very vulnerable and very authentic. I think this is also why a lot of men can't connect with their wives at a deep soul level. They weren't groomed for it. Being vulnerable with others, it runs against this fake masculinity that we grew up with. Wives, listen, it might be easy for you. You need to know it's not easy for your husband. It's like calculus three for him a lot of times to have those conversations. Sometimes Paula asks me how I feel, and I think, I don't know, tired, hungry? What do you mean? Like when you say feel, like what do you mean? You know, She's already ahead of me. See, Solomon is unable to connect to men, and he's unable to connect to women. Now, for the woman thing, we know it's a sexual dysfunction for sure. That, by the way, that's not my opinion. On your own time, roll over to 1 Kings and start reading. You won't even get seven chapters in, and you're going to see this guy has a problem with lust, like with sinful lust. This guy struggles. And let me tell you what sinful lust will do. It will turn a, a soul, a person, just into a body, just into a body, just into flesh. And you can't connect with a body. Your soul must connect with a soul for there to be a connection. So for Solomon, he had a thousand bodies, but not a thousand souls, not in his eyes. So there's no one to connect to. This is why men who are locked up in pornography, they have a hard time just carrying on a conversation with a woman. Because they're tempted to think of that person as not a soul, but just a body. I think that's what's going on here. That I'm not a thousand percent. That's where my best research and logic is landing me. I think his problem with women is not women, it's him. I think his problem finding connection with men is not the men, it's him. It's him. But what does this have to do with self-righteousness? I think when you and me, when we are un, unable to authentically connect to others on a soul-to-soul -soul level, then we're able to maintain this polished image of who we are. We're able to keep our self-righteousness intact because no one's ever going to get close enough to tell us that there's anything wrong with us. We won't let them see it. We won't let them that close. So self-righteousness, it doesn't just ruin or destroy, in his words, your relationship with God. It does so with other people as well, doesn't it? Ruins it. Your inability to relate and connect to others, that's not them. It's you. It's you most of the time. I, listen, I know people can be difficult. Sure, people can be difficult to connect with. But if you can't find one in a thousand, friend, it's you. It's you. It's you. You know, one of the things that pastors hear often, often, is when people exit a church. 
it will usually be under the banner of, I can't connect here. And what it does to me in my mind, I start going through the Rolodex of all the cool people that go to the church, that show up, the people I love, the people that are awesome, the, the, the women that I want my daughter to grow up and be around, the guys that I can't wait to get around, and I think, you can't connect? I mean, if you can't, if we've got 100, 120 guys you can't connect with or 100 ladies you can't connect with, you think you're going to go to a church of 1,000 and that's going to be easier? Or a different church of 100 or a church of 10, you think it's going to be easier? The problem isn't the cool people. The problem's you. I think a lot of reason we have a hard time connecting with people is because we think too highly of ourselves. We think far too highly of ourselves, And so when we look to connect, what we usually do, and this is just true for everyone psychologically, we look for people that we think are a little bit cooler and more mature than us. That's who we really want to connect with, right? That's the tribe we want to be in. But if it's somebody that we might see as kind of a peer or a little less than a peer in our eyes, we don't want to connect to them. So self-righteousness is a mode where we are thinking so highly of ourselves. And we don't want anyone to see our dings and our dents and our, our traumas in life that we just won't connect. And it will feel like only one in a million guys and definitely no women. It's just never going to happen. So here we are. We're painted into a corner where he is telling you and me to pursue righteousness and wisdom, avoid wickedness because that's the key to life. But guess what? You've got no chance of pulling this off because no one ever has. So why even bother? That's his statement. Here we are. Nowhere to go. Harassed, tormented. As he says, it's too far from me. It's too deep. So very, very deep. And then he says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Until God brings one. Until God comes as a man who does live good and never sins. First Peter, Peter says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So what was too far for Solomon and what was too deep for Solomon became flesh for you and me. And the righteous doesn't just come for the unrighteous, but the righteous comes for the self-righteous. This is the beauty of the gospel, that Christ came to confuse karma, just obliterating it by giving us what we don't deserve and not giving us what we do deserve. This is scandalous. It's a scandalous gospel, the one that we we hang our hat on, the one that we build our lives upon. It's a scandal because it refuses balance and fairness. It won't have it. Fairness is that we are all destroyed. That's fair. That's fair. For the crimes that we've committed, there is really no righteous person who ever does good and never sins. We should be destroyed. Fairness is that we all perish without God. Fairness is that we live alone and we die alone. Fairness is that God stays far and wisdom is staying too deep. Righteousness is unattainable. But Christ subverts this by taking what we deserve and giving us what only he deserves. By taking our self-righteousness upon himself, and giving us the righteousness that only belonged to him. And in this beautiful swap that is the gospel, it removes any need you have to judge yourself, to appraise yourself, to evaluate yourself, to assess yourself. Because we now, like a coat on a cold day, wear the righteousness of Christ like a, like a robe. 
It rests around us. Is, is Paul says to the Galatian church, for as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. Put on. What this means is, is that when God looks at you, forensically, judiciously, this is what he sees. He sees a perfect life lived. I mean, let's not be weird. It's not like he, he just has no idea what you're doing. But forensically, he sees a perfect life lived. He, he says to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not because you did good, but because Christ did. And you have now borrowed, you have now assimilated, you've put on this righteousness of Christ. There is now no condemnation for those who are wearing Christ. That's what Paul is saying. He goes on to say to the Roman church in 8 verse 3, he says, For God has done, meaning you did not, for God has done what the law weakened by the the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Man, this gospel Friends, this gospel, it just doesn't get old. It doesn't get old. And when we come to a passage like this and we repent for our self-righteousness, we have to begin with how we fail to see the gospel accurately. Here are some questions I'm going to ask you, and I want them rattling around in your dome as we finish this part of the service and then as we have worship and as you take communion. Why are you perfect for God? I say that phrase a lot. You're perfect for God, and he's perfect for you. But why? Why? What makes you a good person? Why does God love you? Why does he like you? Here's my favorite. This rattles people. Are you pleasing to him? You see, right inside of your head, as soon as I said, are you pleasing to him, you know what you did? You said, well, maybe not this week. Maybe not this week. I mean, last week I put a couple good days together, right? I think he was more pleased with me last year. I think January he was more pleased with me than he is right now. Listen, sure, we need to repent in advance. We need to grow as he disciplines us. That's true. But his approval and his pleasure for you does not dip. Does not He might not be pleased with what you have done, but like a father with his good kids, he never stops being pleased in who you are. Not once. But if you believe that God is only pleased to be your father when you act right, that's karma. That is not the gospel. It's not even Christianity. It's karma. If there's anything that makes you more lovable or shiny to God beyond a bloody cross and an empty tomb, then your faith is sliding closer to an Eastern religion. You might as well be Jehovah's Witness or Mormon or Muslim than Christian. I hope you hear that. When I say, why are you perfect for God, friend, it's it's Christ or it's nothing. It's Christ or it's nothing. There's this terrifying passage in Matthew 7 where Jesus is talking about the end of all ends, when everyone's deeds is being appraised and measured counted. And in that moment, there will be people that will come and say, we did some great things, kind of like in Jesus's little parable. Didn't we tithe? Didn't we show up to church? Didn't we plant churches? Didn't we give to church? Didn't we prophesy, they say? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do all of these impressive, righteous things? Didn't we do this? And what does he say? 
And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Listen, if you are here and you are a skeptic when it comes to the things of Christ, you're a skeptic when it comes to the church, maybe you're not sure about it, maybe you're just asking questions, you need to know that salvation is based on the idea of where is your righteousness found? If your righteousness is found in Christ and you wear, as we said, that righteousness of Christ, then you are a son or a daughter of the king and that can never be taken. Your seat at the family table sits there and it will wait and it will always be protected, never to be taken away. But if you show up and you say, I'm going to rest and trust in my righteousness, you will fall short. Really, the question is, where do you trust for your righteousness? That's what I want you to hear in Ecclesiastes 7 and in Matthew 7. But listen, we have a lot to celebrate in this text as well because he says that which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find out? Who can find out? Did you know that there will be a day where that is you and me? We already know karma doesn't work, right? We already know that. I mean, listen, you'll go out and do something nice today for somebody, and what's the average saying that we always say? No no good deed goes unpunished. That'll happen. You you won't even make it to bedtime tonight, and you're like, yeah, that karma thing, it really doesn't work. I never really paid attention, but it's not worth trusting my life in. And friends, listen, I can't answer all the questions about why God does a certain thing a certain way, but I trust him. I trust him because he's good, and he is strong, and he is thoughtful, He is mindful, he's generous and benevolent, he's sacrificial, he's very kingly, and yet he serves us at the same time. I trust him. I trust him. And any time I get to where I'm not sure if I totally trust him, I just avert my gaze to a cross that has blood all over it and a tomb that no longer has death in it. And then I'm reminded there's a lot to trust in. It's not just a big gospel, it's a big gospel that points to a big God. And we are safe. And all that seems far off will one day be very clear. One day it won't be too deep for us. It won't be. It won't be too far for us. Amen? Amen. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to pray out of this. We're going to take communion together. Listen, if I've got somebody in the back that can run and get, thank you, appreciate it. We're going to have somebody bring in a a bucket or a a platter, I don't know what that thing is called, um, full of these things. And so listen, if you're a Christian, we want to invite you to take communion with us, right? You don't have to be a part of Legacy Church to do this. We just ask that you would be a Christian. Uh, uh, But if you are not, don't worry about this and don't even be intimidated by this right now. I just challenge you to consider taking Christ instead of this, okay? Because what this is is an emblem of the very beautiful act that I just described in the gospel. All it really is is a wafer and it's some juice, But for us, as a a family, as we come together as a family, it's much more than that. It's a family meal where we celebrate the good news of what God has done together. And so, do we have it? Raise your hand if you need one of these things, and he will bring one to you. I think we're all getting pretty good at grabbing one on the way in if you're a part of Legacy. If not, no problem. Listen, if this is foreign to you, it has two wrappers, two tops. The clear one gives you that wafer. I guess it's called a wafer. I don't know what else to call it. And then the bottom one is the juice. And we'll just take the bread first and we'll take the juice separate. And I'll I'll walk with you through the whole thing. But I just want you, as we take the bread, Christ is the one in the thousand, isn't he? He is the one in the thousand. The one in the trillion. 
the one in infinity, who came and is not just asking for us to be vulnerable and intimate with him before he was so for us. He was vulnerable to us, laid his life low for us. I mean, I've shared a lot of things, but I've never shared my blood. I've shared a lot of things, but I've never shared my body. I've given, but I've never given my life. This celebration of what God has done is him going before us to show us what vulnerability looks like, to show us what it means to be authentic as we connect to each other and treasure the righteousness that was given to us, not the one we build ourselves. So Father, we thank you for this this bread, Lord, as we take it together as a church, that it's a symbol of your body broken for our benefit. So go ahead and take the bread. And Father, we thank you for your blood that was spilled. It's the blood of royalty. The blood of the one who came and did good and never sinned. The blood of one in a thousand. And as you shed it for us, at that moment, we had a new family DNA. We were brought into a family we really have no business being in. (laughs) Sitting at a table we shouldn't be sitting at. And the thing is, Father, is you, against karma, gave us what we don't deserve, your favor. And you don't give us what we do deserve, which is punishment. And the price tag for that great gift and your position towards us is the blood of Christ. So we take this in remembrance of you. Go ahead and take the the juice. And Father, before we go into worship, before we go into worship and before we take this time to sing and reflect and pray and give, before we do these things and before we leave and, and hang out with our friends or our family, Lord, let us just seize this moment. We ask for your Holy Spirit to not let this moment slip away. Show us, Father, where we've been self-righteous, where we have thought too highly of ourselves. Even more important, show us how we've treasured and trusted in our own ability to be right and impressive instead of just trusting in you. Lord, I pray that when the people in this room fail, when they hit a foul ball, and they just misbehave, that they're able to immediately, not a week later, not a minute later, but immediately rush to you and say, thank you for being so good to me and developing and nurturing this intimacy that you pay dearly for. Lord, I pray that this self-righteousness that will be like a shadow to us until the day you collect us all and call us your own, Until that day, we'll have to contend with this thing. Help us see it. Give us a a view of it by your spirit, Father. So, Lord, we love you. And I pray that you administer to those in here who are far from you. I know people must have walked in here tired and out of breath, emotionally, lost. And like we've been saying in this sermon, even feel like they're painted in a corner. Lord, that you would show them how beautiful you are, how grand the masterpiece of the plan that you have called the gospel, how sweet and considerate and gentle and yet strong and mighty and thorough you are. You are good. And we thank you. 
It's in your name we pray. Amen.